Podcast's newer online podcast series, The Perils of Publishing. I'm your host, Paula Croxon. In the first episode, we met John Chol Park and Peter McAdam of the University of Pittsburgh. Their paper, Anxiety Evokes Hypofrontality and Disrupts Rule Relevant Encoding by Dorsomedial Prefrontal Cortex Neurons, was published in the Journal of Neuroscience in 2016. Last week, they told us about how the idea for this study began and some of the challenges faced along the way. We also heard from a couple of cell press editors about what they look for when evaluating studies and some new journal efforts toward rigour and reproducibility. Today, we'll look at what happens after an experiment is conducted. Let's get back to my conversation with Beta and Junchol to see how they turn their experiment into a paper. So Junchol, was this your first publication? Well, this is my second publication. I definitely uh, learned a lot throughout this whole process. And the biggest challenge that I experienced was how do I sort of balance in terms of portioning different parts of the data set. So we have like a different experiments and we want to sort of convey them well balanced in a way that we can sort of convey our message efficiently. So there were some data that I had that I analyzed, but I have to cut them off to some extent to sort of keep uh, balanced between different experiments and different different data sets. And this was still my initial experience of writing up a manuscript and publishing a paper. So it was a challenge for me to come up with a well-balanced portioning of the data sets and come up with a comprehensive story out of them. I asked Beta how the process of writing a manuscript in their lab generally happens. In general, with writing papers, I ask the trainees to start with the results section and the method section. Once we are happy with the results section and all the analysis and the methods, at that point is at that point then then we go and write the introduction and the discussion. And depending on the experience that the trainee has, uh, I actually go through that paragraph by paragraph. They always give me the first draft, but then we go and work on it paragraph by paragraph to make sure that it's well written and it's fairly written and that the data are interpreted appropriately. So this paper went to another journal, which was what we actually call the glam mags, uh, higher profile <laughs> journals, where the editors are professional editors, unlike, unlike journal neuroscience, where uh, editors are people like me, you know, my scientists that have labs and write grants, etc. So, of course, Jun Chol and almost all trainees would love to have publications in Glam Mags. And to be fair to them, when they go to get jobs, postdocs and faculty positions could be improved if you have publications in these journals. So, initially, our idea was, because this was a very novel approach, it was an unusual approach, it was not an approach where these journals have taken in studying anxiety, we thought it would be very interesting to try this, to try to go to one of these glam mags. And what I found from that experience, which is not a new experience, is that if you go in with a different way of looking at things, people are taken aback because this is not how, quote-unquote, we study anxiety in animals. So we were taking a novel approach within studying anxiety in animals. Would you say that you did anything differently for the big journal, for the Glam Mag, than, um, than you did for J Neuroscience? 
Yes. For one thing, with the glam mags, what happened going through that process was the viewers coming back and asking for more and more. So we ended up with massive, massive supplementary, which was out of control. Journal Neuroscience doesn't have that, which I really like. So we couldn't have had to make the entire supplementary relevant to the main message of the paper. So that shifted. Previously, these journals had published papers looking at anxiety in ways that are standard in rodents. Measures like open field, elevated plus maze, these are purely rodent behaviors and traditionally people have used them. We were using a very clinical approach, a human relevant approach, which for me is very important. But again, this was not how these journals approach them. So when we send the papers to these journals, the reviewers came back incredibly harsh in terms of disagreeing with the results because they disagreed with what they had previously used to study anxiety in rodents. And after several rounds of back and forth, we essentially gave up. And even though all the details were addressed, it came down to us not studying anxiety the way these journals had, previous papers these journals had used. So after that, we went to Journal Neuroscience which was great because then you were dealing with editors whom I could convince that it's actually a good approach to be taking in terms of the clinical relevance of this. Other than that, no, there wasn't much change. I think we, we, we made the abstract slightly different because of the formatting changes and made it more scientifically oriented as opposed to flashy, but other than that, the only change really was to bring the supplementary section down to earth, make it relevant to the results and the data. Vita told me that she prefers the fully integrated format to the brief format, where much of the detail is buried in the supplementary information. We talked in the last episode about how CellPress is improving materials and methods sections to do exactly this. So would you mind saying a little bit more about why you prefer the fully integrated format than a format where there's supplementary information? Yes. You actually see the data. I mean, how many people go through the supplementary and download all those massive figures and and data? I mean, the joke is that you can figure out what stage of review each supplementary figure was added because it becomes... (laughs) It becomes a matter of satisfying many, many reviews. And I personally have ethical issues with that because you end up, when you do animal research, you end up probably using a lot more animals, doing a lot more studies that may not be necessarily relevant to the main message of the paper. Because if they were totally relevant, why would you want to stick it into a supplementary when nobody sees it? So it ends up, in my opinion, wasting a fair amount of resources, time and animal work and laboratory supplies so that you could have these giant amounts of data that's essentially stuck somewhere where a lot of people don't see. Vita makes a good point here. And it's not just relevant to animal studies. In general, there is a drive in the field to improve communication about our methods and results. This links back to what we talked about in the last episode about rigor and reproducibility. I spoke to Katja Bros from Neuron to say a little bit about how she thinks data sharing can contribute to scientific rigor and reproducibility. Data itself is such a complicated term. Is it the raw data? Is it the analyzed data? Is it really just the data behind that figure or is it the whole data set? So I think there's a lot of challenge to this problem and a lot of that challenge is 
certainly not specific to neuroscience, but I think neuroscience in the kinds of data that especially systems neuroscientists are generating is unique. So there's a lot of discussion across Cell Press and also some projects that are looking at you know efforts and platforms that we can we can put forward to allow access for, for readers and, and reviewers to the data behind a paper. I think there's already a lot of structure out there and there's already kinds of data that have been captured in papers for quite a long time. I mean, for instance, genomics data or protein structure data, there's been databases that allow very accessible sharing of that kind of data. My own opinion in the neuroscience community is, is, is this is an incredibly important problem, and I know um, lots of people from the breadth of the neuroscience community are, are, are thinking about this and sort of actively pursuing data sharing policies and platforms. I think where it gets really complicated, and I think we're still in the throes of really hammering out kind of policies and philosophies, and ultimately we're going to need some structure for sharing big data, the kind of data that you know many in, in the neuroscience community, systems neuroscientists, for example, are generating every day. I mean, that's not the kind of data that's easy to upload on you know, a platform like Figshare. There needs to be a different kind of mechanism for uploading that data and sharing it, for allowing credit for that kind of data, for making sure that the data that's up there is the right data. I know this is a big topic also for the, the brain initiative and for some of the other global brain initiative type programs out there, and there's a lot of discussion around this. And so I would certainly encourage the community, SFN in particular, to kind of continue to pave the way for really open discussions around this because I think it's a really important problem, but one that has some pretty big challenges. I spoke to Jim Knirin, reviewing editor at the Journal of Neuroscience, about preparing a manuscript. I asked Jim whether he had any advice for authors on how to write a good paper and how to avoid some common pitfalls. It's a difficult balancing act one often has to do in terms of how to portray the paper, how to, how to sell it is the, the pejorative term, you know, sometimes where you don't want to oversell things as well. Sometimes you get this feeling that you have to really exaggerate the findings or the importance of them or the novelty. And, and you know, that can backfire, especially if you oversell it too much. And that's one of the tendencies sometimes you see, and that could actually wind up hurting the review process. If you promise things, say, in your introduction or in your abstract that you don't deliver, you know, that could be worse than, than just not, you know, being be more realistic at the outset. And that depends a lot also on the type of journals. One thing I mentioned before was just not to oversell things too much, um, which can be one of the problems. If you set the expectations of your reader too high and you fail to deliver, that's often a problem that, 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 that you see. You'd be better off setting expectations lower and then, you know, talking about actually what you're going to eventually deliver than actually expecting people to see something that you don't wind up showing. Another thing, I think sometimes people are rushed and they submit their papers before they're ready to. And they're not proofread carefully. Lots of either typos or even things like a number that's in the text and then you go to the, to the table and the number doesn't match. So clearly, somewhere along the line, you know, data changed. Maybe a data point got added in or removed for whatever reason, and numbers changed. But then the table got updated, but the text didn't, or vice versa. And as a reader or reviewer, when you see a number of instances like that, you start to be concerned about, well, okay, 
these mistakes I caught, you know, what else is going on that I don't even know about? Okay, you know, these, these things matter. And, and as an author, you should be, you know, not, not submitting that paper until you are confident that you looked at it as carefully as you can and it's ready to go out. I've heard some people say that oftentimes, you know, they, they want to get the review process going. So they submit the paper and let the reviewers, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of, Find out the problem and so forth. They're just going to take two years to get the paper out anyway, and let's just get the ball going. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something that I just think is just, you know, it's not something that should be done. It's not the reviewer's job to make your first draft into <laughs> a submitted paper. You know, your job is to do that. And as a reviewer and as an editor, I perfectly feel that certainly is, is, is good grounds to reject the paper if, if, it, if it was just, it's not ready to be presented yet. So you got to be careful about that. Uh, certainly, the language is important, especially if you are submitting it in an English language journal and English is not your, your first language. These are important things to do. Get a colleague, someone you know, to, to, to read it over. And, and, and not somebody who's just going to give it a, a one, two, three, and yeah, it looks great. You know, somebody who, who will spend the time on it and really not only perhaps help with the language, but even just with the overall presentation of the work. One thing for the J neuroscience that we that I often find a problem is that many, since the general neuroscience currently does not allow supplementary material, a lot of uh, papers that we get, have, you know, we, we know it's very clear, you know, we were the second or third journal they went to, you know, one of the other ones rejected it. And then since the general neuroscience does not allow supplementary material, oftentimes the authors will just take their body of their paper and submit it to us without the supplementary. That's often a mistake because oftentimes is fundamental information that they put in that supplementary material, and now the, the reviewers at the general science don't have that information, and they think they, this, this paper seems incomplete. So, so this is specific specific for the Journal of Neuroscience, but if, if you've got a situation like that, Journal of Neuroscience doesn't have limits on number of figures and so forth. So, if you really have critical information, <laughs> you know, don't just take the easy route and just take your main text and throw it in there. You, you know, you may need to change things. So, and that's true for a lot of different journals. Uh, it's, sometimes it's just very clear that a paper got rejected by one journal, which is fine, and, and, you, and you send it to another, but you haven't done the reformatting or whatever is specific for that new journal, and, and, and sometimes it just comes up as being sloppy to a reviewer, and that could just hurt you. Other than that, you know, good papers, again, given the noise in the system, <laughs> but good papers should get good reviews. And Many times there are papers that are good science, but just very poorly presented. If you make your reviewer work really, really hard to try to understand what your data are trying to say and what you're trying to say, your conclusions, you know, you're not going to fare all that well. And, and, and oftentimes that's just a question of getting feedback from colleagues before submitting a paper to try to make sure the paper is really as well-written and understandable as it can be. And the statements that you make are supported by the data. You can, better to get your colleagues to give that feedback than to then go to review process and then go through all that and then, you know, have problems with the reviewer. One issue that often comes up during manuscript preparation, especially for junior scientists, is authorship, the order of authors and how to assign credit. I asked Peter how they decided on authorship in their lab. When we started writing the paper, Jun Chol was the first author because he essentially finished it. You know, you have to I always joke that you have to be a finisher in science. The project had been started. It, it was actually another person in the lab 
who was a side project and then she shifted to something else. Then Jun Chul came and, and essentially finished the study and then he worked with other people in the lab that had more experience with some of the analyses. But when we started writing the, with this particular paper, it was clear that it was, he was the first author. In my lab, People have their own project. Everybody has their own project. You help out and collaborate with others in their project, but certain projects are your dissertation projects, especially for your dissertation. It's very critical for me that a student has their own dissertation project. So when they start writing papers about that, then it's, then it's clear who is the first author. That shouldn't stop you from helping out others and hopefully getting you know second and third authorship on other papers. But at least the way my lab is run, it's always clear who's the first author. John Chell added his thoughts on how middle authorship is assigned in the lab. I mean, uh, one thing is that the order of uh, second and third and fourth author, the middle author, has been slightly changed throughout the process. It depended on, as I said, like we decided to add some extra data and we conducted extra data analysis. And like some authors uh, contributed more throughout this later process than uh, we initially didn't expect, right? So depending on that, uh, we sort of slightly changed the order of middle authors, but that was it. So that all sounds very straightforward, but have you ever encountered conflicts around authorship? No, there have been times where in the process of writing the paper and addressing the reviewer's comments, not, not with this paper, but other ongoing papers, Somebody, a second author, has stepped in has, and has done the bulk of the work, and that's generally because the first author, they have moved on and have gotten jobs. In that case, then, we, in collaboration with all the authors, we may switch the author order, and that's something that has happened. It hasn't caused conflict. It has been always in coordination with other authors. My advice to those who have faced conflict is probably to be just really straightforward and really honest from day one. If you have concerns about your order of authorship, go to your advisor and, and just, just just be, don't hold things back. Be honest about it. And, and a lot of, most, most scientists are very reasonable. So if they are, that has been my experience. They may be aloof, they may, be, they may appear not nice, but the majority of the scientists I know are incredibly reasonable people. So if you feel like your authorship order is not fair, go to, go to the senior author and just tell them, you know, I, I just feel like this is not fair because I've done this and this. And then have a discussion with them. It can, it can help both of you. So my advice is to just make, it, make a discussion out of it. Use, use it as, as an excuse to talk about the issue with, with your advisor, understand what their reasoning was, and, and let them hear you out. Because they may, not, they may not know about some of the work that you have done that has contributed to the work. I mean, as, as Jun Chul said, with this paper, we changed the order of second and third author because throughout the revisions, the third author ended up doing a fair amount of the analysis and he was moved to the second author. And that switching was okay by all authors. So, I asked Katja Bros if she had any advice for authors on assigning authorship. So we typically leave this to the authors. I mean, we provide some general guidelines and philosophies around um, assigning credit, which is what authorship is. 
Beyond that, we leave it to the authors to decide on order and on things like whether there might be co-authors. We do have some policies around you know, numbers of authors that might be in that first slot or a number of corresponding authors. And in line with some of the efforts that we're making to make our methods more transparent, we're trying to be clearer on the responsibilities of especially the corresponding author in terms of providing either you know, responses to questions about the paper, should questions come up, or in terms of providing access to reagents or data when that might be the case. So we do have policies around authorship, but in terms of the specifics like who ought to be first author and last, that we leave up to the authors themselves. It is true that in some cases, issues will come up around authorship at some point in the review process, or often it comes up just before we're about to publish a paper. And our policy there usually is to really set it back to the authors and make sure that they work it out before we move forward publication, but that we don't really adjudicate you know, level of credit that should be assigned. We feel like that that's ultimately the responsibility of the corresponding author or authors on the paper to decide. My recommendation to authors, uh, especially corresponding authors, is to work these things out as soon in the process of writing a paper as you can. Obviously, that has to have some flexibility with it. Uh, especially during the review process or the revision process, sort of the level of contribution may evolve and there may need to be changes. And as a journal, we're completely open to allowing authors to make those changes during the review process when it's appropriate, or I should say usually during the revision process. But I think in the experiences I've had, as I think authors who have these open conversations with their colleagues you know, as soon as they can, whether it's people in their lab or nowadays so often other uh, co-authors and collaborators outside of the lab, to have those discussions and negotiations early on and not have that become a bottleneck towards moving the paper forward in review. Katya gave me some thoughts on what characterizes a paper in a high-impact journal such as Neuron. For better or worse, right now the kind of dominant style of paper presentation, I think in well, most of the high-profile journals, but also probably most journals these days, is this very narrative style. And I think Cell Press, when it was first launched, I mean, I think it's seen as a journal that kind of brought this style sort of more to the fore, this telling a scientific story kind of style with, you know, very nice figures and context in the introduction and a lot of integration in the discussion. And that's not the only way to write a paper, and I think sometimes um, one sees this, especially in um, authors from other parts of the world. It's not even the dominant style in other parts of the world, but it is kind of the dominant style, I think, most of most of the high-profile journals. And and I think one thing to think about when you're writing a paper in that style is, is I mean, you obviously need to present the science accurately and thoroughly and honestly, really almost like building a narrative case, right? I mean, what you ideally want is you're sort of building a case for your conclusions. And so by the end of the narrative, the, the reviewer or ultimately the reader, they can't help but be convinced by your story, right? I mean, not that they might not see other possibilities that would be of interest that shouldn't even preclude your paper from, from being published. I mean, it's fine to have gaps, but that there's a kind of a logic to the case and there's sort of a buildup to where, you know, your conclusions, you know, they're, they're the most reasonable expl explanation. And I think that's the kind of paper that certainly reviewers, you know, they really enjoy reviewing. It's really interesting to read and, and readers really like to read. 
And I think it sort of also sets you up as an author as you're building that case to also start to self-identify where the holes are, right? Where, where you might need more work, where you might need stronger evidence. And so I think that's another thing that I've, I've seen in the authors who I feel like do, do really well. So the flip side of that would be, I mean, what mistakes can you make, I guess, is not writing a paper that way. I mean, certainly I think not thinking hard about presentation is a big mistake. Most people do, but I think there's, you know, there's, there's style differences. And so I think kind of paying attention to, I think, your scientific story and how you tell it, I think, is, is important. Storytelling is a powerful tool for scientists. It makes our work clearer and more compelling. It seems as if being able to integrate a narrative into our publications is a great skill and definitely valued by journals and readers alike. Well, that ends our journey for this week. Thanks to everyone who shared their insights on how a study becomes a manuscript. Tune in next week for episode three, when we'll talk about the submission process. If you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can also find full episodes and sign up for weekly emails at Neuronline. Visit neuronline.sfm.org forward slash podcast. I've been Paula Proxon, and this was the Neuronline podcast, The Perils of Publishing.